We are going to do, as I mentioned already, a just a one-off sermon uh, on days like Labor Day weekend where people travel. Uh, often we'll be in between series. We're going to start a new series next Sunday on the parables of Jesus. But this week we're going to do a one-off. And I just decided to stay with the topic of anxiety. I, um, on the front end, I want to say that word has a lot of weight. It's loaded. All of us know the feeling of anxiety, but some people actually have true anxiety disorders and, and desperately and definitely need medication. And I think this message is for everybody in that camp, whether, whether you're on whatever extreme you're on, but primarily what I'm thinking about is just the season of life we're in. I mean, 2020 is like the word would be anxiety. It's just tons of it, all of us. I, don't think, I can't imagine any person other than Donald Trump who has no anxiety. Sorry, no political. I'm just being funny. Come on. I just, sometimes I wish I had his confidence. Um, but most people, if they're honest, would say, because of everything that's happening with the pandemic, with race, with just communication online in our town in Stillwater, college students, you're getting the brunt of it. Everyone's looking at you with the evil eye because you're bringing the pandemic to us. Parents with children in school and teachers who are trying to teach those kids, we're all like watching just every little sphere of life seems to be erupting with anxiety. And so I wanted to look at probably one of the most beautiful passages on anxiety and anxiousness in the Bible. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, addresses it. And it's important because the nature or the, the situation going on in that, in that culture was, here's Israel who believed they were called by God to be the people of God, and yet they were occupied by Rome. And, and there was this question of just what's going to happen and all this oppression and they knew what the prophets taught and they longed for a Messiah. And so they felt much anxiety as just the norm of their life. And so here Jesus comes in and begins his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the key applications is to not be anxious. And so I thought that would be something we could look at today and see what we can learn. And I want to just say, I think on one hand, we have a tremendous amount to learn from this passage, but I certainly don't want to promise that all of your anxiety will just disappear. I don't think anyone thought that. My goal is to just pa- is process this passage this morning and see if we could learn some principles for dealing with our anxiety. So if you'll look with me at Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, you have given us in this sermon a clear promise that you desire us to be so enwrapped with our Heavenly Father, with the triune God, that we actually have the potential to not be anxious, even though the world around us certainly has many things that can cause fear. We are told and we believe and we pray we would better understand this morning how your, how your presence in our lives would free us to have peace in the midst of an anxious world. Amen. I was discussing this topic with my wife and processing, and she reminded me, actually it wasn't even reminding, she told me a story that I was in, but I didn't know about, sort of. I was just talking to her about the topic, and she said, well, this reminds me of a time, we were at the ocean, and I think it was my, one of my sons, because we would, of the times we went to the ocean, but I don't want to leave out, it could have been you, Meredith, it could have been you, Grayson, and one of you two, maybe. If Bonnie's in here, it could have been you. Coleman, could have been you. So we're at summer conference, we're in the water, um, everything's great, and mom, Emily, sees one of our sons, I think it was our, probably Grayson, the biggest, tallest at the time, going a little bit farther than he should have, and trying to enjoy the waves, and you know how the ocean is, for a moment it's fine, and then there's that one wave that just pommels you, and, and she just noticed a fear on his face, not terror, just concern, am I farther out than I should be? Um, this would have been age, I don't know, six-ish, seven-ish, I'm probably way off. And she said, before she knew it, I was swimming out to him. And obviously, I'm, I'm type A. I'm always looking. So I was out there. And she noticed that when I got to him, the waves were still hitting. All the same things were happening. But his face went from anxiousness to joy and pleasure and excitement. Because he knew there was safety in his midst. And I really want that to be the backdrop of what we're talking about. If you know the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, I, would, I don't know if it's the pinnacle. You could debate where the pinnacle is, but the Lord's Prayer seems to be that place where you're at a climax in the sermon, and it leads to then the few verses that we're looking at this morning come from it a few verses down the way. But as you know, we just prayed it together, Our Father in Heaven. And so what I want to say is this, and it's going to be a very hard statement. Some of you are going to hear this statement and think, you know, of course, it's obvious. Others are going to go, yes, I believe that, but I don't feel that. And some of you might be bothered by it, but here we go. The cure to anxiety, there's only one. One cure, that is to be in relationship with your Heavenly Father. Now, let me tell you what I don't mean. I'm not saying if you have anxiety, you're not a Christian, nor am I saying if you have anxiety, the only thing you need to do are spiritual practices. But what I am saying is when we see our Father face to face, when we're in glory, when we have that beautiful reunited time, we're not going to have anxiety, right? So anxiety is the result of the fall, and primarily our separation from a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. So this side of heaven I don't think anxiety is ever going to be fully removed, but the good news is 
someday, one day, someday it will be fully removed. And by degrees, we can have freedom from anxiety, though not totally this side of heaven. So let's look this morning at this passage and find out some ways we can find some freedom from our anxious world. We're going to start by looking at the problem with anxiety and then the cause and then finally the cure or potential cure. Okay. The problems with anxiety. Jesus begins this part of his sermon by saying, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he gives you three, or gives us three areas of life that sort of seem to encapsulate all of life, what you will eat and drink and what you will wear, sort of food and shelter, food, water, shelter. And so he's basically saying, here are three things you need. God will provide them. Don't be anxious about them. Now, Oftentimes, I think people read this, especially when we get to the birds and think, well, they don't have to, to they don't have to like store up in heaven. So maybe Jesus is just saying, don't worry, don't care about it, don't even plan. But that's not what he's saying. The, he doesn't say, I tell you, don't plan about your life, don't have goals for your life. He says, don't be anxious. So I've just been really wanting to spend a, some time as I process this sermon. What is anxiety? And obviously, this space and time is not enough to fully unpack it. But one definition I'm processing is it's an irrational response to a real need. Right? When we have anxiety, there's a real need we have. Security, food, right? whatever the thing is. But it's the irrational response. It's a response we make out of our fallen condition. We, we know we can't take care of ourselves, so we begin to just gin up fear and anxiety and worry. I had a professor right after 9-11, that's when I began seminary, and it was Dr. Doriani. In one of his sermons at chapel, he said, he gave the example, um, the Mississippi River had flooded not long before I arrived, and he he used some of the flooding as an illustration of laying sandbags. And his illustration was, while you're laying sandbags, you and the community and the team and the trucks, there's a sense in which, yes, you're anxious, but you're doing something. He says, but when you lay that last sandbag, and you stop and you realize there's no more sandbags and the water's rising, you're now just simply powerless. That's where oftentimes anxiety comes in. Think about it. You turn the light off, you go to bed. Anxiety. Why? Because all day long you've been able to kind of spin the plates, pretend you're getting stuff done. And it's when you finally click the light off, you realize who's running you know, my life, the universe, the situation. And uh, I think so anxiety is our response in those moments because it feels like we're accomplishing something. Do, do you, do you know, talk, do you, have you ever thought about like the fact that when we're anxious, we're actually trying to control and trying to think and trying to ruminate on a topic because it feels better than the alternative, which is to do nothing. It's like, at least I've got some control, right? At least I can just think about it one more time, one more cycle through, one more how this is going to all happen, how this will play out. And before you know it, you're addicted and struggling with anxiety. So there's way more we could say about anxiety, but I want to now go to the underlying cause that the passage gives us. What is the cause or the reason for anxiety? Uh, One of the best things about the Bible, there's a lot of great things. One thing that I think is often missed A lot of non-Christians will go, oh, the Bible just tells you rules. It just tells you what to do. And yet, when you come to Scripture, often it doesn't tell you exactly what to do. It gives you, like, 
three-dimensional thinking and underlying causes for things. So much so that often people will come to these places where there's not a prescription and they'll say, tell me what to do. It's like, give me the rule. And it's like, well, actually the Bible gives you sort of underlying issues, underlying causes. And so Jesus does that. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Stop. He gives you some reasons. He gives you some explanations. He explains reasons why you can not be anxious. And also, by the way, as a Bible reading tool, when you come to the word therefore, what are you supposed to ask? Who said it? Someone said it. Say it loud. What's the, the, thank you, good job. Is that Shane or is that prior to RUF? What is the therefore, therefore? Now, we didn't add it into the reading. It's a, it, in some ways, it seems like a separate passage. But Jesus has preached or has answered the question about prayer, taught his disciples how to pray. He's talked about fasting. But then in chapter, same chapter, sorry, six, in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I'm going to paraphrase and move quickly. Then he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy. And then he says, no one can serve two masters. You either will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and most English versions say money. The Greek word is mammon, and it, it, it's material possessions. You might just think of a better, broader term as the, the material, the created order. And so what Jesus has just said leads him to then say, therefore, don't be anxious. What does he mean? He means the anxiety is stemming from the fact that we've replaced heavenly treasure with earthly treasure. Now, let's back up just a little bit more. Our Father, where is he? Who is in heaven. So treasuring heaven, yes, it's to treasure um, certain things that we know will go all the way into eternity, but ultimately it's to treasure God himself. And it's when we take our eyes and our hearts off of treasuring God in worship and start looking at created things that oftentimes we will find ourselves having anxiety. And there's two key things he says, the eye and then serving. So just quickly, the eye, what are you looking at? Like, where do you focus? Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. What, he, what that means is, what am I looking to to fill me? Not necessarily physically looking at it. I'm not getting into like, what are you looking at? You know, those are all important questions. I mean, what am I gazing at for completion? What am I looking to to find completion? I think a simple illustration, and I'm just from the scriptures, is Peter. When Jesus walks on the water, what does Peter say? Can I join you? I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He gets out of the boat, he looks at Jesus, and he's walking on water. But when he ceases to look at Jesus and looks at himself and considers the material world and how impossible it is for human beings to stand on water, he sinks. So one of the causes of our anxiety is we're looking not at God, but we're looking at the created world and trying to make sense of everything as if God doesn't exist, right? Secondly, we serve those things. No one can serve two masters. You either will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
this might be the hardest, I mean, this is one of the hardest teachings in the Bible because all of us are, are divided in our hearts. All of us have ambivalence. That is, we, we both love God and we want to worship him, but we really do struggle with the beauty and, and the goals we have in this world. And so when Jesus is telling us you can't serve two masters, he's not saying you can't have all these things in your life. He's saying, but to serve it, you know, to, to, in, in a way to worship it, to put all of your hope in it. But it's, I love it because it's utterly honest. Why would I not want to serve created things? Because moths and rust destroy those things. Where is your thing? What is your, I'm not taking that out. For me, when I think about places where I'm anxious, I always have that spot, that place. Um, if you, for example, live in a certain home, in a certain neighborhood, and you feel anxious about finances, and someone says, have you thought about downsizing? Oh, no, no, no. That's your thing. That's now the thing that's keeping you from freedom. I'm not saying you have to downsize. I'm just simply saying, as a Christian, as a disciple, there should be nothing but Jesus that I would say no to. Does that make sense? Is it, uh, is it a type of work, a type of income? I remember talking to someone who was looking for work. This has been 25 years ago. It was a family member. And I suggested, you know, I know you want to do this and it pays this, but you seem to have these skills. And, he, and you could just see immediately, not a chance. I've got to have this salary. Again, I'm not, I, I pray that God would bless us with good salaries or whatever. But again, if you have these places that you simply will not let go of, and yet you want peace, you won't find the peace. Right? You're serving two masters. Political party. Does anyone want to talk about politics? Because I sure don't. You'll never see me talk about politics on Facebook. Right, Shane? It's dangerous. But again, I think arguments come because so many times people have said, yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I love God, but this is my political stance. This is my view. And again, I'm not saying we don't have things we stand by based on Scripture, but anytime we serve that thing, Anytime we, like, in a way, almost worship that thing, that's what's going to bring me healing. That vacation, that retirement, that relationship, that president or not, you know, whatever it is, when that's where I'm going to be healed, my body instinctively is going to start to go, it's not going to work. Even if things seem to be working, that's the crazy part. Even if some of your treasures seem to be coming, there's always that sense somewhere in your body that's like, it's not going to satisfy. And that creates anxiety. So, the I and what we serve. So let's just talk about curing it. I, I wanted to kind of keep this sermon sort of shorter this week. Uh, I, this is a meditation on anxiety, but we've talked about sort of what it is and some of the causes that we've, the eyes aiming at the wrong source and that we're serving the wrong treasure. Um, but I want to now look just simply at some of the ways this passage seems to say it's cured, and not just this passage, but the whole picture. And I want to start by saying um, God is present in this sermon as a father. And that's hard. Some of you had wonderful and do have wonderful earthly fathers. Some of you are wonderful fathers. Some of us didn't have that. And so um, you, you see this, and I think I just want to throw this thought out 
if, I think it's fair to say every person I've ever counseled or talked to about their sonship or daughtership to God would admit there's a struggle at times with believing God delights in them. Anyone else relate to that? Kind of a thought of like God accepts me or God because of Jesus welcomes me, but I don't know if he delights in me. And yet the scriptures teach that God, the triune God, loved you from all eternity. If you are a Christian, you were created and he has loved you from all of eternity. And so Jesus has come to do what? Seek and save those whom God has given him, the Father. And so Jesus shows up not to see who's going to be obedient, but to rescue his people. Yes, sin is important, and we need to talk about sin. Yes, redemption. Yes, all those things. But God begins by saying, I delight and love my people, my children. I was reading one author whom I love, uh, Kurt Thompson's Anatomy of the Soul. I've recommended it to some of you. It's not a theology book, and I'm not sitting here saying I vouch for every word. But he has a chapter on attachment theory. And so this is an area where I think psychologists might be onto something. When they study infants and, and their primary caregivers, they have discovered that certain relationships have what is called secure attachment. And when that's happened, they can see and observe in infants. If you have any questions about what I'm talking about, Dr. Smalley will have a cl- he'll talk to you later. Right, Dr. Smalley? He's waiting to see where I'm going. He's our pediatrician, so all questions about infants go to Dr. Smalley. A child, they have, you can watch this on YouTube videos or scientists have studied it. When the parent leaves the room and the child has secure attachment, they feel calm. They, they, they aren't afraid. They trust the parent will come and go. They have, they have things like self-control, the ability to soothe. And then there's what's called insecure attachment where for various reasons that attunement, that love, that care has not been set in the young, young infant and child and there's anxiety is the primary result. And I think for many of us, we have some deep-seated anxiety that goes all the way back to infancy. But I will also say, theologically, every human being was born separated from God. And in that sense, all of us have an anxiety that will be here at some level and in different cases until we go home or Jesus returns. But the reason I want to bring that up is the cure then is re- grasping the fact that God is our heavenly father. And let's look at our passage. He says, look at the birds of the field, or the air, excuse me. They neither sow nor eat nor gather in the barns. Yet, verse 26, yet your heavenly father feeds them. He could have said Yahweh feeds them, the God of the universe, the king. Those are all true statements, but he chooses to say your heavenly father. We see it again at the end at verse I believe it's 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. So here's the question. Okay, God's my heavenly Father, and I can imagine earthly fathers. Where is God, like, stacked up with earthly fathers? Like, if let's imagine the best earthly father. Is it, I, I shouldn't say names of sitcoms, because I was going to say Bill Cosby, because for a while that was, like, the guy. I would, then I thought Mr. Rogers, but I'm like, I don't know that he had, did he have kids? Anyway, but who is the father? Maybe it's a neighbor kid. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's just a, a conglomeration of a picture, but of loving care. 
Like that's what dads embody and, and the safety they bring. Where does God stack up on that? Well, in chapter seven, Jesus um, gives a quick, not a parable, but an example. He says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. He's saying basically pray, ask. Your father wants to give you his good gifts. And then he says, which of you, if your son asks for a, some bread or fish, would, be given a, would you give a stone? And of course, the answer is none of us. Like not even the worst dad in the room would give a stone to their kid. But, he, but the best dad would give like bread and the best dad, all the dads, right? But he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, it's, if you're a Calvinist, oh, see, I'm evil. Yes, that's kind of his point. I think his point rather is to say this. Fall, earthly fathers, the best, compared to the, the, our heavenly father, will just look evil. Like if you compare them from, if you go to heaven and spend time with God, no matter who that earthly father you imagine is, they're going to just look awful. Even though we need them, even though moms and dads and, and, and caregivers are so critical, the, our heavenly father delights so how does that sit with you? Do you feel his pleasure? Thompson goes on to talk about in the book Anatomy of the Soul that when God the Father, and this is one of those things you can theologically debate with, I tend to agree. When, our, when, when Jesus is commissioned and the Spirit comes on him, God the Father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. I've always instinctively thought because he obeyed for 40 days in the desert. He earned that comment. That's not our theology. Our theology would be from the beginning of time of all creation, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And really what's happening in that moment is God the Father is christening, is saying of Jesus, he is my son. Listen to him. He is the one who is going to rescue you and save you. He is the firstborn of those of us that are of God's creation. He is the firstborn of the sons of God. So if God delights in Jesus, God delights in you. We know that he looks at us with pleasure and delight. So anxiety can begin to heal when we have that theology and begin to move in. But how do we do that physically? Last week, we talked about the sluggard. And do you remember Proverbs 6, 6? What did Solomon tell the sluggard to go do? Go to the ant. Look at the ant. Watch the ant. This week, Jesus says, go to the birds. And I just want you to hear this. He's not saying right now for you to understand my argument, think of birds. I want you to hear him saying, take time to go into God's creation and look how God's providing. Go out and look at the birds and just see what they do. And know that it is God who's providing for them. How much more is your father going to provide for you? And then he says, consider the lilies of the field. Again, take time, process, pray, meditate. Think about God's creation, his general revelation, and how he's superintending all of these things. How much more will he care for you? And then he brings up scripture. Think of Solomon. In all of the glory, he was arrayed. And uh, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like the lilies, and yet God 
clothed Solomon, how much more would he clothe you and care for you? So there's a process, not only of acknowledging our son and daughtership of God, but this process of actually thinking about it and meditating and noticing and looking at it. But I think the most practical thing I can tell you to do as we come to our sort of final moments is you have to, okay, I hate to say you have to. When we praise God, when we praise anything, but especially the one who's worthy of praise, our souls are lifted up. There is just something about it. I think during this pandemic, no, nobody will argue that social isolation has, it's been harmful. Listen, I'm not talking about whether it's helped this virus or not. I'm just saying in general. Let's pretend that after everything's done, we needed to be socially isolated from each other for six months. I don't know. Everyone would agree. However, that isolation, even if you're online, is damaging. We need to be with people. We need to be in the body of Christ. We need to be worshiping. Again, I'm not saying please don't, that you shouldn't have done it. That's not my point. My point is we as Christians need to gather together safely, of course, and being aware of how to love our neighbors well and all that, but we have to be together because is, this is one of the means by which God meets us until we're in heaven where we all gather together and praise him to his face. And there is something that happens. And what I have found in my life, and maybe you'll agree, if you are a regular church attender, not only do Sunday mornings feed you, but where you really can tell is when you've taken a break. The weeks where I've missed church, or maybe I've strung together a couple of weeks for various reasons, I feel a subtle anxiety, just a sense of anxiety, a sense of tension, a sense that I've not been in the presence of my Father. And so praising him both privately through scripture and prayer and corporately, but we praise him and we look at him and we give him glory. And oftentimes when we do that, there's like repentance involved because in the beginning of praising God, sometimes we feel like I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready or I struggle with this. But if you will just boldly praise, this is going back to the Bonhoeffer quote, the action of praising God and thanking him and worshiping him changes you. It changes your neurobiology. It, it heals you. And when we do it corporately, we become less anxious. Does that make sense? That's one application. There's many, many more. But ultimately, we want to come to that place where we find everything in Jesus as our application. So in a moment, after we close in prayer, Shane's going to come up here and lead us in a confession of faith. But I'm going to actually read it right now to get us ready for it. This is from Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And what we're going to read together in a moment right now, you're just going to listen to. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Salvation meaning, of course, coming to know Jesus, but for your ultimate entry into the glory of heaven, the full picture of salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me 
of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, that's theologically true, and we love that. I love that. But I struggle with that. So I can read it and begin to pray, Lord, help me to believe these words, help me to live these words out. But also, in about two minutes and eight seconds, when Shane's up here and we're reading it together, proclaim it. I want you to hear your voice saying it out loud as though it's true. And feel the difference in your spirit as you gather together with not only the saints in this room and those online, but saints throughout many, many years of history where since this has been written, saying these words and believing them. Let's pray.